Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is good to be back with you uh, this morning. Uh, thank you for your prayers. I have been gone three months, as you know, uh, and I have appreciated your constant encouragement and uh, your prayers. Uh, many of you have sent me notes of encouragement uh, as I've traveled literally around the world, as I was calculating the number of miles I traveled, almost 56,000 kilometers, um, which is about uh, one and a half times around the world. Uh, and through your encouragement uh, and the working of the Lord, was able to speak to thousands uh, in 13 churches on three continents in six countries and 11 cities. And so uh, it was a, a busy time, uh, and yet also a time of spiritual refreshment uh, and ability to encourage uh, brothers and sisters around the world uh, and bringing your greetings to them uh, as they have heard what God is doing in this church. I remember during my trip, I was hosted by uh, wonderful godly men and women who really opened up their homes and their hearts uh, to bless me. Uh, while I was on my way to uh, Southern California, uh, I asked my host family who would be taking care of me if I needed to rent a car as I had some appointments uh, and needed to uh, drive myself around. Uh, they emailed back and said I, could, I didn't need to rent a car, I could use uh, any one of their cars. Now, I don't know this host family this well. They were a family that was assigned uh, at the church who had invited me to speak. Uh, I'd never been to their home. Uh, I assumed that uh, when uh, they were offering their car, it would just be one of their, their regular old cars that was uh, a spare. Well, I arrived, and they picked me up at the airport and uh, arrived at their home. And uh, uh, they said, oh, you need a car. Well, uh, let me tell you the car you'll be using. You'll be using one of our Porsches. Uh, it's our spare car. Uh, now, you can only imagine what their other cars are, that their Porsche is a spare. Uh, it was my first time, or would be my first time, to drive a Porsche. Uh, I was both scared and very much excited. Uh, just Can you imagine being in Southern California, sunny Southern California, uh, with a roof down, driving a Porsche? Uh, I have pictures I will not show you, lest you think otherwise, uh, what I was doing there. But... Um, the next day, I prepared myself, and I drove to my appointment. And let me tell you what, uh, it felt good to be behind the wheels of that Porsche. But I had never driven so slow in my life. Uh, I, I was afraid that someone would hit me, and the liability that I would incur well, would be more than I made. Uh, but it, it was excitement. There, there was a joy. There was a, a, just a passion uh, to be able to savor the moments of that experience of driving a Porsche for the first time. But, you know, something very interesting happened as I used that car for a week and enjoyed it very much the first few days. As the days wore on, I stopped caring that it was a Porsche. It was simply just another car, a vehicle to get me from one place to the other. I thought I would be on a high all week, but the reality is the excitement began to wear off. And being in Orange County in Southern California, there had a lot of beautiful cars. And the excitement of driving a Porsche began to wear off. As I was thinking about that, that experience, I thought what a very similar experience we all have as it relates to our relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, do you remember the first time you invited Christ into your heart? Uh, whether it was a revival meeting or a, uh, at the behest of the sharing of the gospel by your friends, or perhaps you were at the crossroads of your life. You didn't know which way to turn. You were in a pit of despair, uh, and you were trying to discover yourself, and the gospel was brought into your life. But that moment you decided you would accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that moment you decided you would make Jesus Christ Lord of your life, that feeling of excitement that you said you would never sin again, perhaps in the exuberance of meeting the one who died for you, uh, the feeling that you would always live a life for Him, the commitments you would make, whether it was at a summer camp or at, at, at a meeting or at the conviction of your personal devotion, that you would always trust and that you would always pray. Um, and, and stepping out, you would tell everyone uh, about Him. The, the feeling that you were willing to do everything and anything uh, on His behalf. What happened to that feeling? The reality is we slowly begin to lose that excitement of that first encounter we had with Jesus Christ. The drive and the motivation to live for Him begins to diminish. The awe is no longer there. And somehow walking with Jesus becomes something mundane, something no longer exciting. These three months away, as I traveled around the world preaching, I uh, had some very long plane rides and 
uh, those plane rides uh, afforded me the opportunity to reconnect with Christ in a new, exciting way. Uh, even for myself as a pastor, I have to almost be forced uh, to remove myself from the busyness of all of our schedules and to focus one-on-one with the one who saved us. I began to remember in those times of quiet the uh, characteristics of my life that was evidenced when I first met Jesus Christ. And Lord willing, these next few weeks, I want to share the characteristics of what a first encounter with Christ needs to look like. And so we start a new series this morning. We're going to be looking at various people in the Bible and their first encounter with Jesus Christ and how it changed them and how it should change our lives as well. What are the characteristics that are evidenced of those who come to an encounter with Jesus Christ? We want to see Jesus Christ with new eyes this series, to see him again for the first time, to relive that amazing experience of the newness of who we were in the world and what we have become because of him. And so we begin our study this morning with uh, our first encounter in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. If you're new to the Bible, the Gospel of Luke is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Then we get Luke. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. And as you're turning to the scriptures, I just want to give you the context uh, of this incident uh, in these verses. Jesus will encounter a Pharisee named Simon. And there he will also meet a woman who is living in sin. Jesus will contrast their lives to see what happens when one encounters the Savior. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 38 reads this. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when he knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. And stood at his feet behind Jesus weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears. And wiped them with the hair on her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. What we have here is an incident where a Pharisee by the name of Simon invites Jesus to dinner. Now we don't know the reason for his invitation. But that doesn't matter. All we know from the story is that Jesus accepted the invitation of Simon, and now they were eating together. As is the normal custom of the day, most likely they were reclined on the floor or on couches as they ate. As they were eating and conversing, a woman living in sin learned that Jesus was eating at the home of Simon the Pharisee and and showed up and, and stood at the feet of Jesus. Now, you may think it's quite unusual for this uninvited dinner guest to suddenly show up, but it was actually quite customary that when a famous teacher was invited somewhere for a meal, others could come and simply stand around the side and listen in on the conversation between the host and the guest. Just imagine the honor of the host who had the privilege of inviting someone so famous and others were there to listen in on their special conversation. Well, what does this woman begin to do? She begins to cry. She, the Bible tells us, is weeping and her tears are falling on the feet of Jesus. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why she's crying, but I venture to guess that she was overcome with the conviction of her sinful life and in repentance came to the Savior for restoration. Her tears are dropping on the feet of Jesus and she uses her hair to wipe the tears, literally washing the feet of the Lord. Now we're going to find out later that this Pharisee doesn't give Jesus the common courtesy to even bring out a wash basin for Jesus to wash his feet when he entered the house. So you can imagine how dirty Jesus' feet were. You see, sometimes we read these passages, and I know you know this passage, and we have a sanitized version in our minds of how the picture looks like. We've seen, I've seen the Sunday school pictures depicted of this scene. Jesus' feet don't look that muddy. This woman's hair looks like it's been conditioned. 
and, and it seems as if it's some sort of uh, act of humility and adoration, but simply that, a sanitized version in our mind. But let me unsanitize it, that version in your minds, because it wasn't sanitized. In those days, as you know, everyone wore sandals. It was dusty, it was muddy. Uh, in fact, there wasn't any indoor plumbing, so human waste, everyday garbage waste, were simply thrown out onto the streets. And this was what the people were stepping in, much less the animals and what they produced. And so the feet of these people would have been very, very dirty. And that's why it was only right and customary that even if you walked into a home and there wasn't a servant to wash your feet, at least a basin of water would be there prepared so that one could wash their own feet before they stepped in. What we find out is this Pharisee Simon does not provide that basin of water, and so Jesus' feet are very dirty. And this woman begins to cry, and her tears begin to drop on the feet of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you. I'm sure you've cried a lot. We use the term, you've cried a bucket. But the reality is none of us have really cried a bucket full of tears. Have you? You can cry a lot, but that tear is really not that much. I believe that crying of that woman's tears was enough simply to wet the feet of Jesus, not necessarily to clean the feet of Jesus completely. In fact, uh, there was enough tears there to simply make all the dirt congeal. Does that make sense? Uh, to make the mud and the dirt stick. And so what she was doing was she was simply making Jesus' feet more dirty. And amidst all that, what was she doing? She was wiping that gooey mess of mud on Jesus' feet caused by the little tears that she had on the feet of Jesus. She was caking her hair with all this mud. That's the picture. But she doesn't seem to mind. In this mess, this woman is kissing the feet of Jesus. Uh, the verb is in the imperfect, uh, indicating continually kissing the feet, not just one peck, but literally kissing the feet of Jesus. Can you imagine kissing something so dirty as the muddied feet of Jesus? And yet, for her, this woman, a great act of humility and adoration to the Son of God. And then to top it all off, at the great expense of this woman, a woman living in sin, she takes out a jar of perfume. Perhaps this was the tool of her trade. This perfume would be that which attracted the men. Perhaps she thought she would need it no longer. And she poured the contents of that perfume jar on the feet of Jesus and anoints the feet. It was customary to anoint the head, but perhaps she felt unworthy, and so she anointed the feet. If you were the host, what would be your reaction? This was not a sanitized act. It was an act of messiness. It was an act of desperation. It was an act of this woman that was completely from her love for the Lord, not caring what those around her thought. Well, we get a glimpse into the heart of this Pharisee named Simon. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself. He doesn't actually speak it out. He's thinking this, saying, this man, referring to Jesus, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon the Pharisee is utterly disgusted. So disgusted that he doubts even the divinity of Jesus Christ. Jesus should have known about the reputation of this woman the acts of sin that she had done. Forget, forgetting what she was doing in the present in adoring the Son of God. All he was concerned about was the grave sin of this woman. With utter contempt, he looked down upon her. And this messy act of adoration 
showered upon Jesus. You see, in the mind of Simon, this woman was too broken to be in the presence of a great teacher, too sinful to come to Jesus. Apparently, this woman was quite famous. She was known in her community. Or else, why would a pious Pharisee seem to know this woman and her reputation? More likely, she was a prostitute. Now, before we vilify Simon the Pharisee, many of us are just like him. Many of us think of church in the very same way. We believe that those who have seen sin greatly are not welcomed here. Their sin is so ugly and so dark that they cannot present themselves before the holy God. Now, this is not a license to mean that you are not to change your sinful life. But it does mean your sins, however great, does not preclude you from coming to the Savior. You are welcome to approach the Savior. If you believe that you are too perfect, or simply perfect, or too good, then you don't need to come. This church is not for you. This is not a church for the perfect people. But yet we do it. We look at people sometimes with utter disgust, especially if they have messed up their life somehow. But let me ask you the question, do they deserve to know the Savior as well? Do they need to be restored? I don't know why you come to church this morning. Only the Father knows. He looks into your heart. But I know that many come with ulterior motives. Some come to church to do business. So I warn you this morning, be careful. Even amongst the church members, there are people here doing business. Some come because they need money. And so they're going to prey on unsuspecting people for money. Some come only to meet someone else. Some come only to be seen. Some only come because they need a check mark to their activity, come to church. Some come only because they need a good luck charm, because they've got a major test this week or a major business meeting. Regardless of your motive, the one who comes with a heart that seeks to be forgiven are the ones who are welcomed by the Savior. So why do you come? Don't worry about what everyone else is doing and why they're coming. Why do you come? Well, Jesus can read minds. Surprise, surprise. And he responds to the thoughts of Simon in verse 40 to 42. Look with me. And Jesus answered and said to Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. And Jesus told a parable in verse 41 and 42. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Jesus, knowing the thought of Simon the Pharisee towards this woman, speaks a parable to him. A parable is a story with a lesson. I hope you will not miss the lesson. In this story, there are two people, both owed the same creditor different amounts of money. One owed 50 denarii. A denarii is a day's wage, so 50 days worth of wages. And the other 500 denarii, more than a year and a half of wages. One owing more than the other 10 times as much. Now, kind of to put it in your context, one owing 100,000 pesos and the other owing a million pesos. When they didn't have any way to pay back the creditor, the benevolent creditor forgave the loan. Jesus asked Simon this question. Which one of the two debtors will love the creditor more? The one who was forgiven 50 or the one who was forgiven 500? And look at Simon's answer in verse 43. Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have rightly judged. Jesus instinctively, excuse me, Simon instinctively said, of course, the one who had been forgiven much 
would love the creditor much more. And Jesus said, Simon, that's the right answer. You are correct. You are correct. Now, I hope you see the point of Jesus' parable here. In case you don't, let me put it into your context. Because the implications of this parable weigh greatly in our lives, in how we live it. You see, some of us have the notion or the thinking that my life is pretty good. I'm pretty good. You know what? I'm not that bad. I have good morals. I didn't kill anyone. I didn't embezzle. And so, you know what? I deserve to go to heaven. And yes, I know I couldn't get there and I needed Jesus, but basically all Jesus did was he provided a way for me to get to a place I already deserve to go to. But you know, a lot of people think like that. A lot of Christians, we're good people. All of us are good people. And we believe that God provided a way through his son for us to go to a place we deserve to go to. Now, I were to ask you honestly, do you deserve to go to heaven? Most of you would say, absolutely. But those very people who believe they deserve to go to heaven are the very people, like myself, who will easily forget the impact of what Christ really did for us when he forgave us of our sins. We've forgotten that. I need to remind all of us, including myself, that we are all sinners, Romans 3.23 tells us. For all have fallen short of the glory of God, everyone. We've all missed the mark. And our sins are deserving of death, Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Don't any of you leave this place thinking that you deserve heaven. All of us deserve eternal damnation. All of us were destined for hell. And there was no way we could save ourselves. Not by your good works. Not by your position. Not who you know. Not what you know. Nothing could have saved you. You and I were destined for hell. It is what we deserved. Because the requirements for entrance into heaven is pure holiness. It was perfection. And there is no person that I've met in my lifetime who was perfect. So someone needed to die in our place. Someone needed to save us. And so Romans chapter 5 verse 8 tells us that Christ died for us. He died in our place. That great substitutionary atonement of Christ. And by putting our faith in that act of His dying on our behalf, we are saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You see, Jesus Christ extended His hands out on the cross. And by doing so, was able to reach out and pull us up out of the miry clay of hell. We were all destined for hell with no way out, deserving of it because of our sin, no way to be saved. And yet by the grace of God, He saved us. Does that change your perspective? How then would you respond? My travels took me to two cities that were polar opposites of each other. I thought there would be no connection between the two, but there was. My travels took me to Berlin, Germany, and to Shanghai, China. And I was interested to see how these two cities actually connected. When I was in Berlin, I had the chance to uh, walk around the city a bit and uh, visited the old Nazi Gestapo and SS headquarters. Uh, and they had turned the headquarters into an exhibit entitled The Timeline of Terror, very close to uh, Checkpoint Charlie, if you're familiar with uh, that part of town in Germany, uh, in Berlin, during the time of the Cold War. But in this timeline of terror for World War II, uh, I saw the historical markers of how uh, the Nazis oppressed the Jews to see to their extermination and their annihilation. I saw how Jews were rounded up and put into train cars, destined for certain death in the gas chambers and the concentration camps that were scattered throughout Poland and Germany, places like Auschwitz and Dachau. Some went into these train cars knowing that they would soon die. Others thought they were simply being repatriated to a place like Poland. Regardless of the fact whether they knew or they did not know, 
They were all destined to certain death. And more than six million Jews died. No way out. They could not buy their way out. They could not bribe their way out. Destined for death. Moving when you yourself put yourself in that position. And then I was in Shanghai. And I was told by my host, surprisingly, that during World War II, there was actually a vibrant Jewish community there. A Jewish community in the middle of Shanghai, China? I didn't believe it. And so he took me to a Jewish museum. And there I became acquainted with a man by the name of Ho Feng Shan. Dr. Ho lived between 1938 and 1940. He was the consul general for China in Vienna, Austria. Dr. Ho, seeing what the Nazis were doing to the Jews, recognizing the evil that was at work, rescued thousands of Jews from the Holocaust and from certain death by issuing visas into, of all places, Shanghai. To the detriment of his own career, he issued these visas. When I visited the museum in Shanghai, there were videos of these survivors who spoke in deep adoration and admiration of this Dr. Ho, who owed these people nothing. And yet, because of his kindness and grace, saved thousands of Jews. And those Jews live today into the third and fourth generation because of a man who plucked them out of certain death. Put yourself in that train car, if you would. One, because of your ethnicity. One, because you happen to be there. Wrong place, wrong time. It doesn't matter. But you're on that train. Whether you know what's happening or not, you are heading to the gas chamber. And then you're randomly pulled out by a kind guard or someone who was benevolent. How appreciative would you be? Very much so, I believe. But, my friends, you don't have to imagine that. It is something you and I have lived out in our lives. We were destined for hell. And Christ picked us up. Not because we deserve it. Not because of who we are. But simply by His grace. Something I'll never understand until the day I die. And I will marvel at the grace of God even when I stand before Him. And my response, and I hope it will be the response of you as well, is absolute adoration, appreciation, thanking God in worship for what He did to people like you and I who deserve nothing. Look at your life. Do you really honestly deserve heaven? If you're honest with yourself, you don't. And I don't. But He gave it to us through His Son. And so we worship Him. We love Him. We esteem Him. We adore Him. That is the characteristical response of one who has been saved. Of one who encounters Christ. You must elicit the characteristic of adoration. Destined for hell. Made alive in Christ. How can you and I not but fall on our knees and adore the one who saved us? The question is posed to us as it was posed to Simon. Which one of you will love Christ more? The one who believes they're utterly broken, deserving of nothing? Or the one who believes they were entitled to heaven? Because if you feel you're entitled to heaven, you will never understand the great depth of what Christ did. And you will slowly begin to lose the passion you have for Jesus. How do you believe you are? What do you believe about yourself? Are you unworthy or unworthy of the grace God has given you? And if you're unworthy, and adore Him.
fall at his feet and worship him because that is what he deserves. If adoration is the result of an encounter with Jesus Christ, what does that look like? I know adoration is kind of a, a vague word, but what does adoration look like? Let me give you three evidences for how adoration is to be manifested in our everyday practical life. And I'm going to use Jesus' own words in verse 44 to verse 46 as he contrasted the actions of Simon the Pharisee and this woman living in sin. Look at verse 44 with me. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, I love that. He looks at the woman, but he's talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, Simon. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. In the ancient Near East, one was not required to have a servant wash a visitor's feet, but they were at least to provide a basin of water or else it would be an insult. Simon was the one who invited Jesus into his home. Jesus did not force himself into the home of Simon. And yet the host could not even welcome him with a basin of water. Shows how much he really welcomed Jesus into his home. In contrast, this woman of sin is so overwhelmed in her first encounter with Christ that in adoration she welcomed him by providing what the host could not. She provided water from her tears. She provided a cloth with her hair. From her actions, we see the first evidence of what true adoration looks like. And if you're taking notes, here's number one. The first evidence of true adoration, number one, is a warm welcome. A warm welcome. We're not talking about hospitality. We're talking about your heart condition as it relates to the Savior. Do you warmly welcome Christ into your life? You've invited Him into your heart. Have you put out a spiritual basin by which you can wash his feet. You see, there's a famous painting, and you've seen it, where Jesus is knocking on the door. And it's been pointed out in that painting that there is no doorknob on Jesus' side. And that's true. Because the door handle is on the other side. Jesus will never force himself into your life unless he is invited in, and unless the door is opened. For many of us, we've opened that door. We've invited Jesus in, but we told him, Jesus, would you just go sit in that corner? I'll call you when I need you. We pay no attention to him. We do not offer him a warm welcome. We do not spend time with him in prayer. And we simply leave him there until the house is burning. And we say, hey, Lord, can you help us out here? Until, unless uh, the mortgage is due or the rent is due. Hey, Lord, could you help me out on the finances? Or we have no one else to talk to and say, hey, Lord, I've got nothing better to do. I guess I'll talk to you. But in the meantime, Lord, would you just sit there quietly until I, I call upon you? What kind of welcome is that? We say we adore him. We admire him. We appreciate him. We have even invited him into our lives. But we've sat him in a corner. And we say, hey, welcome. He will never push himself upon us. The impetus is upon us to welcome him with open arms, to, to roll out that red carpet for him as he figuratively rolled out his red blood for us. How many of us would even offer a basin for him to wash himself? How many of us would even get down and wash his feet by serving him and his ministries? Verse 45. You gave me no kiss, 
but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. Simon was told by Jesus that, hey, Simon, you didn't give me a kiss of welcome. You see, in the ancient Near East, it was customary to greet each other with a kiss on the cheek, especially one who was being welcomed. A sign of friendship, a sign of sincere acknowledgement that the one who was being kissed really meant something to them. Simon did not even extend to Jesus that common courtesy. It's similar to our Filipino concept of beso. The idea you kiss someone cheek to cheek if, if they're a genuine friend, someone you know. The Lord told Simon, Simon, you did not greet me with a kiss, and yet this woman has been kissing my feet, mud and all. Why is that so? Here we find the second evidence of true adoration, and here's number two. The second evidence of true adoration is genuine friendship. If you really adore someone, if you say you adore them, then you are a true friend. One who sticks with them to the thick and thin. Let me ask you this. Do you adore Jesus Christ in your life by introducing him as your friend to all who are in your spheres of influence? Or are you ashamed of him? Do you hold him to a high regard and identify with him by figuratively kissing him and saying, this is the one I identify with. You remember what Judas did? Remember at Gethsemane? Judas kissed Jesus, a sign of friendship, a sign of identification, only to signal to the Roman guards to arrest this man. A great act of betrayal. How many of us do the same thing? We may figuratively kiss Jesus to only identify with him, but only for a short moment. But when others show up, we reject him. You know, the worst types of friends, well, they're not really friends at all. Uh, the worst types of friends are those who, when it's just the two of you, you have no problem getting along and laughing and talking and conversing. But when other friends of higher social uh, levels come into play, you get pushed aside. You know those types of friends? When it's just the two of you, you're not embarrassed. But when everyone else shows up, you're embarrassed of them. That's how we treat Jesus. We don't mind that he's our friend on a Sunday. But he's not much of our friend Monday through Saturday because he's simply not accepted. And so we'll kiss him on a Sunday, but on Monday through Saturday, we may just wave a hi. Do all the friends in all levels of your spheres of influence know that Jesus Christ is your true friend? Do they? If you say you adore him, you admire him, you love him, you esteem him in response to what he's done, does everyone know that you are his follower and that he journeys with you wherever you are? One of my hosts, a godly couple in the East Coast living in Washington, D.C., uh, was a restaurant owner. Uh, he was an engineer and had become a restaurant owner, and I found that quite fascinating. And so I asked him, Alan, why would you go from being an engineer to opening up a restaurant? And he said to me, the reason I opened a restaurant is because I wanted to draw people in and I would be able to share the gospel with them. He was an evangelist at heart. And I said, how did that work? What happened? Well, he said, you know what? I opened a Japanese restaurant. It was a Chinese opening a Japanese restaurant. Uh, it was one of the first Japanese restaurants in that area uh, in Washington, D.C. And so it did very, very well. Lines were always out the door as God was blessing uh, him. And I said, well, what did you do? Did you manage this business day in and day out, so on and so forth? He said, no, the only thing I did was I would go around to all the tables, introduce myself as the owner, and then share with them the gospel. I would tell them, hi, I'm Alan. I own this restaurant. 
And let me tell you about this Jesus I know. A lot of his regular customers, when they would see Alan approaching the table, would tell him, hey, Alan, we've heard the Jesus thing before. Can you let us eat in peace? And I said, what do you do? He said, well, I respect them and I won't uh, mention it again. But I will make sure that every customer knows that I'm a follower of Christ. I said, aren't you worried that you'll lose business? He said to me, it doesn't matter. This restaurant is not about earning money. This restaurant is about telling people about Jesus. And I love that. God blessed him. He was a multimillionaire. He told me his cash intake in a day, and I was amazed. He said, my biggest joy is when I got to tell people about Jesus. He said, you know what, Steve, it's funny. People told me, you've got to create the Japanese ambiance at a Japanese restaurant. But you know the music I played in the restaurant? I played Christian music at a Japanese restaurant. Some were annoyed, but I didn't care. But I wanted to make sure that everyone who walked in would know about Jesus. He retired early so that he could do what? So that he could be a missionary to the restaurant workers. Oh, I loved it. And I saw, it wasn't just a story. He lived it out. And when we would go to the restaurant, he would take us me out to eat. I would see him call over the waiter and tell him or her the gospel. And they had to quietly listen because he hadn't given the tip yet. And I would see how he would call over the busboy, the waiter, the Hispanic, and speak to them some encouraging word in, in Spanish. Or the one who just migrated from China, he'd speak to them in Cantonese or in Mandarin, just to affirm them and, and to share the love of Christ. This was a man, a couple, who understood that in adoration of the one who died for them, Jesus would always be right by their side. There was a genuine walk with the Savior, a genuine friendship. I wonder how many of us would have that in our own lives, in our spheres of influence. Can you proudly proclaim that Jesus is your friend Verse 46. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. The act of anointing is the act of blessing someone special. Simon was a Pharisee. More than likely, he was very wealthy, but he didn't see Jesus worthy enough for him to bring out some perfume and just dab some on the head of Jesus to bless him. While this woman, perhaps the only jar of perfume she had, in humility and adoration, pours the content of it at the feet of Jesus to bless him. What is the difference between the two? The difference between the two is how they saw Jesus and how they saw him as one who was worthy or one who was not. And here is our third evidence of adoration, number three. The third evidence of true adoration is blessing someone of worth. Blessing someone of worth. You know, we can sing songs about blessing the name of the Lord. But do we really bless God through the way we live our lives? Through seeing Him as one who is worthy and then giving our very life to Him. Because if we bless someone and see Him as someone who is worthy, then we are willing to give up our all. That is adoration. We do not pay lip service to adoration. We actually live it out. And so when we say with our mouth, we adore you, Christ. We bless you, Lord. Do we really see him as one who is worthy in our lives? Because there's a difference between someone who only sees you as just a guest and someone who values you in the worth of who you are to give you genuine hospitality. This family who let me use their Porsche, uh, after a few days living with them, asked me if I had any 
clothes I needed to wash. I had been living out of my suitcase for three months. And most folks, uh, which is common, uh, would simply show me the washer and dryer and how to operate it. I said, sure, I need to do a load load of laundry and uh, just show me your washer and dryer. They said, no, 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 pastor, give us your clothes. Uh, We'll wash it for you. Uh, I simply said, okay, fine. Uh, If your uh, house helper is free, um, just let her do it. But they said, no, 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 we don't have one. Um, uh, I'll wash the clothes and my husband will iron your clothes, your shirts. Uh, I felt very embarrassed. I said, no, please, please don't. Um, uh, You know, let me wash my own clothes. Not because I didn't want them to wash it, but there were some private things I needed to wash myself. Um, But uh, I said, no, just just show me where it is. But I asked them, you know what? I've stayed in a lot of homes, and uh, very few people ask me uh, and tell me what you've asked me. I said, why is that? Why Why would you think to do that? And they told me something very special, and I remember it. I said, you know, Steve, God has really blessed us. God has really blessed us. And he's he's so gracious to us. We are undeserving. And so the only response we can do is we can bless others. And we can bless God's servants. I said, wow. Not because I saw myself as one worthy in their eyes. But I sensed in them a deep, deep, deep love for the Lord. For someone so high in their status saw the washing of a pastor's clothes as something worth doing. I was convicted to my soul because I would not do the same thing. I would simply show someone else where the washer and dryer is and perhaps even help them push the buttons. So it is in our lives. There is a great difference between doing it for one, if you see it as worthy to be done for, or simply going through the motions because you just have to do it. For the one who has died in your place and my place, does he deserve your blessing? And do you see him as one who is worthy to be blessed? Because you cannot show true adoration until you believe that he is worthy. Well, what's the result of all this? The result is that God is well pleased. Look at verse 47 and 48. Jesus said to Simon, Therefore I say to you, not to the woman, but to you, Simon, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much but to whom little is forgiven the same loves little then he said to her your sins are forgiven i love that jesus put simon in his place it was not because this woman loved jesus that she was forgiven but read carefully verse 47 48 it was because she was forgiven that she loved greatly. My friends, our adoration for the Savior comes out of our salvation in Him. We worship in admiration and adoration as an outward response of what God has done in our lives. And if you don't think that God has done much in your life, then you will love Him very little. But if you think about what God has done in your life, then you will love Him greatly. And you will remember to live a life of adoration, always thankful at what He has done for you. Verse 49 and 50 as we close. And those who sat at the table with Him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? Then He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman of sin is sent away in peace, forgiven, renewed joy. Her hair may be in a mess with mud from Jesus' feet. Her face may have been puffy from all that crying. Her single jar of expensive perfume may be gone, but it didn't matter. She was forgiven. 
she was saved and she would be going to glory. I can't wait to meet this woman. I would want to thank her for how she expressed in my life as I reread this passage what true adoration is. I would love for her to tell me how she must have felt when she first encountered Jesus Christ. But we all have that same story. Do you remember your first encounter with him? At night, you wept. That night, you decided to accept his invitation to draw near to him. Remembering that moment when you stepped from death into life. Is that which characterizes your life? Adoration of our Lord. Adoration through a warm welcome of the Savior in your life. Have you laid out the spiritual basin for Him to wash His feet and for you to wash it? Do you exhibit an adoration that figuratively kisses the cheeks of Jesus, identifying with Him in all spheres of influence that He is your friend as He calls you to be His friend? Do you live with the adoration of the knowledge of knowing that you are blessing one, you are singing His praises, you are glorifying Him of one who is not simply of worth, but you are blessing someone of the greatest worth? You see, my friends, a true encounter with Jesus leads to a lifelong adoration of Him. A true encounter with Jesus leads to a lifelong adoration of Him. Let's pray. Thank You, Lord, for Your Word. Thank You for how You use this story to challenge even my life, to open up my life in warm welcome to the one who is deserving. I often forget and believe that I deserved heaven and you simply provided a way for me to get there to a place I already deserve to go. But I'm reminded again that I deserve nothing and that by your grace you plucked me out of hell to bring me to a place I do not deserve. And for that, you have my lifelong adoration. I welcome you always. I sit at your feet to listen. I want to worship you. You are the greatest of worth, the first in my life. Because no one else thought, saw fit to save it except you, this one who is undeserving. May what I've experienced through this passage be the experience of each person here this morning. A warm welcome, an embrace of friendship until the day we see you again. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Work in the hearts of the people this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.